0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of UK TV's crime podcast A Stab in the Dark where once again we take a look through the magnifying glass at the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama I'm Senior Investigating Officer Mark Billingham and to help me with each case I'm joined by major figures from crime fiction on the page and on the screen We'll be talking to novelist Erin Kelly and the creator of Death in Paradise Robert Thorogood Both Erin and Robert have experience in not only adapting their novels for the small screen, but also producing novels that are based on TV programmes. Yep, we'll be talking about the art of adaptation, from novel to screen and back again. Are there any rules? If so, what are they? And should you ignore them? We'll also be hearing from both Erin and Robert as they give us their top picks for what to read and what to watch when it comes to unmissable crime stories. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Welcome to you both. Now, before we delve into our main discussion topic for this episode, Erin, you started out as a journalist. Uh, You're now a well-established crime writer with novels like The Sick Rose, Burning Air and The Poison Tree, all psychological thrillers. So what drew you to that particular area of crime fiction?
2: Um, well, I wasn't particularly drawn to, drawn to psychological thrillers as such because I wrote The Poison Tree nearly 10 years ago now. And that was before, I mean, these days you can't walk through Waterstones <laughs> without elbowing towers of psychological thrillers out of the way. But it wasn't like that uh, back then. And I didn't set out to write in that genre as such. I set out to write a book a little bit like Ruth Rendellas' Barbara Vine and a little bit like Patricia Highsmith. Right. And so that was my thinking rather than writing in terms of a market or to a particular genre. And I only really understood that it was crime when we tried to, um, my agent sent the book out in its first incarnation to lots of publishers who said, we don't really know what to do with this book. We're not going to publish it because we don't know if it's literary or crime or women's fiction and it has elements of all three, which is actually, that that centre of that Venn diagram is psychological thrillers. That's the perfect way to describe it. So I said to my agent, well... Which one of these should I pursue to get a book deal? And she said, "Crime." And then I was a crime writer from that moment on.
1: But it's funny you should mention Ruth Rendell and and Patricia Highsmith because now, as you say, you know, psychological thrillers, domestic noir, whatever you want to call it, it's Mm -hmm. the new Scandi. You know, it's just everywhere. But it's like those writers never existed. It's like you know, these kind of books have been around a long time.
2: Yeah, of course they have. It's um, they, they just are having a moment right now. There's a new wave. They come every, every, you know, every sort of thirty years or so. Every genre will be discovered a new. I mean, I think what we're seeing at the moment is a new wave of cozy thrillers, a new wave of locked room mysteries.
1: There must have been a point when you would get you know when everybody's raving on about these these books you mentioned. I've been doing that for ages. It's kind of like when you like a band and then lots of other people like that band, and you go, I like them first.
2: Mm-hmm. Some of us have been here no, yeah. of course, Of course, I don't begrudge it at all, though, because it means that there is now a wider readership for my own novels. And uh, when I first began, if I would say it's a little bit like Patricia Highsmith, you know, sometimes that would draw a blank look. Now if I say, well, it's a bit like Gone Girl, it's, you know, it's not dissimilar to S.J. Watson, Paula Hawkins, then of course people immediately know what I'm talking about. They have recently read a book in that genre, and it opens things up for all of us.
1: Now, like all, all genres and subgenres, certain key elements uh, that make this kind of novel what it is. So Are there rules for the psychological thriller?
2: I don't think there are rules for the psychological thriller in the same... I don't think it's quite so tightly structured as a procedural crime, which is essentially still, despite all the beautiful things that you can do with the genre, you start with the body and work back. Um, Psychological thrillers are much more likely to run towards the death than start with the death and then... Uh, attempt to solve it, so they're much less forensic. But I think you've got to get blood on the walls at some stage, <laughs> and you've and you've got to, you've got to have an event horizon, even if that's not how you kick the novel off.
1: Right, it's a, it's a sense of there's something coming. It's, it's a sense
2: of there's something coming, or something has already come, and you're trying to run away from that. But I think probably the thing that separates it from the from something like Death in Paradise is that we're seeing it, we're seeing what people want to keep them from the police. We're seeing the other side of the tapestry, almost the back of it, the messy threads. Uh, and I, certainly with my books, I like to take it up to the moment of the police coming. A lot of my books, I could think of at least two of my books that have pretty much ended on the blue light. I hope and, fantastic. And <laughs> then it's up to the reader to take that where they will.
1: Well, you, you mentioned Death in Paradise. Robert, obviously, the creator of the series Death in Paradise, which can currently be seen on the Drama Channel. Tell us how you first got the
3: idea for the well, show. Where did that come uh, from? Well, as you both know, as writers, it's actually really hard to get hold of ideas at any time. And they never really come uh, coherently. But I got the idea for it on March the 8th, 2007. At <laughs> um, 9.33? <laughs> oh, no, March no, it's the 9th. Obviously not March the 8th. But it was because, and um, my wife is a journalist, and she always used to say to me, look, if you're looking for stories to tell, get the newspaper. This is in the days when newspapers contained stories. Um, and on March the 8th, uh, it was during the Cricket World Cup in the Caribbean, Bob Woolmer, the Zimbabwe cricket coach, was murdered, or so it was thought, in St Lucia. And because he was born in Zimbabwe, he had a British passport, which meant that the Metropolitan Police felt um, that they were allowed to send over a British detective to solve his murder in the Caribbean. And I was reading through the newspaper just that morning. It was front-page story. And I just thought, what, the Brits send coppers abroad to solve crimes? Surely the people in St. Lucia can solve their own murders. Well, that's quite a good idea for sure. <laughs> and, it, and it did arrive in that moment. And for years, I'd been trying to get a gig on... Uh, on Midsummer Murders, because similarly, the, the sort of the, I'm delighted to hear that maybe cosy crime or, or golden age crime, as I like to try to call it, might be coming back. But I'd been trying to um, do sort of classic crime for years. But of course, there was Midsummer, which you might be able to get a job on, and there was uh, Jonathan Creek, and that was all David Rennick uh, So I kept badgering Midsummer to give me a job. Kept trying to develop ideas that I would pitch to Midsummer, but because they kept saying no. I kept looking for my own, you know, crime show. And then that's why I sort of came up with Death in Paradise. If if I'd been working on Midsummer, I wouldn't have been looking to try and set anything up.
1: Well, obviously, I, uh, for me, I think the major difference between Death in Paradise and Midsummer Murders is that nobody on Death in Paradise is going to be killed by a giant falling cheese. No, or, <laughs> or <laughs> an exploding golf ball. That was my favourite. OK,
3: but th- th- that was when I Although, kind of no, parted no. company with well, Midsummer. Well, I know, well, it's giant hard, but it's hard, yes, cheese. but look, I'll tell you what, if we run for 15 series, maybe we'll be doing uh, pocket <laughs> watches that when they open up, release a gas that makes you collapse and die. Or oh, can I have that? <laughs> yeah, <you> <laughs> <totally> <laughs> can. my next book. <laughs> yeah. So
1: what, what is it? What is so enduring about these Golden Age mysteries? Because? Because Death in Paradise, obviously, is a, is a contemporary show, but structurally very similar to many of those golden age mysteries. Uh,
3: I, mean, I mean, what were the key influences for you? Well, for terms? me, it's always it starts and ends with Agatha Christie pretty much. Um, that she's who I read when I was growing up. And I think what appealed to me when I was young was that uh, this was an authority figure, an author who was actively lying to us and filling her books with people who were also lying to us. Uh, And I've always been interested in magic and I loved the magic trick, the sleight of hand that she would do as a way of hiding the killer. So when I sort of was setting up Death in Paradise, I completely stole everything that I felt I'd learned from Agatha Christie and imposed that on the show. I mean, it's just sort of golden age crime, but a bit like you saying about you doing your psychological thing thrillers uh, when eventually the show got made everyone in TV land said oh that's really fresh and original (laughs) and I just went no it's not (laughs) it's really old the rules for this were set up in the 1920s Right, and there are rules. I oh, mean, yeah, there yeah. Are. Knox set up. He's got his Ten Commandments, right? Like you can't have your superstitious thing. You've yes. got to, only one secret passage. No Chinaman. Yes, uh, no uh, yes we try not to mention that That's the one. More, most bizarre of, the, of those but silly is, rules. You know, but... to do a fair play, I mean, you know, the, our genre, my genre is looked down upon by proper literary writers, and I kind of get that because we don't, we don't use adjectives that much or adverbs and clever words and <laughs> metaphors. But I think to tell a story where you can reveal an amazing ending. And there are lots, of I mean, one of my favorite books is The Bone Collector, which is basically a murder mystery masquerading as a, as a dark psychological thriller. Um, to hide a killer for well, 100,000 words, mm. and then to reveal and for it to be satisfying at the end, and to be so satisfying that you actually go back and reread it afterwards, and reread it many times through your life. I think that's one of the greatest achievements in storytelling.
1: Absolutely. Now, now Death in Paradise obviously set on a fictional Caribbean island and shot on a Caribbean island. So did you know, come on, we have to be honest here. Did you just create this show so you could have a great cushy holiday every year and Uh, go? I I should say uh, this is the point where I have to declare a personal interest here and say that my wife has just directed two episodes. Of Death in Paradise. Aha, uh-huh, uh, Series 6 is uh, she. So I,
3: I already know the answer to this, or at least the answer she gave me, which is it's really hard work. It is really hard but work. But it's still a Caribbean island. It is. It looks really good on the screen when it stops raining. Um, but there are killer jellyfish, killer caterpillars. Um, yes, I heard it, about the killer a, caterpillars. Yes, they, yes it's, a, um, it's a challenging place to live and work, and I couldn't do the job. I couldn't go out there for six months like we ask our actors to do. It's tough. Looks good, but it's tough.
1: Now, in this episode, we're talk- well, yes, my wife tells me it's tough. I'm still not convinced. No, but anyway. it is, it um, in this episode, we're talking about the art of adapting crime, not just to TV, but but the other way around too. So let's talk a little bit about adapting crime as we traditionally uh, understand it. Erin, before we get to your um, involvement with Broadchurch a bit later, uh, I just want to hear a bit more about your uh, the 2010 book, The Poison Tree, which was adapted for TV. Where were you when you got that call that <laughs> said, uh, you know, we're going to do this and...
2: I was probably where I usually am, which is sitting at my desk in drawstring trousers typing. Um it's where I sit where Drawstring to...
1: trousers, that's a step up from pajamas though. At least you're getting dressed.
2: Actually it's it's loungewear, it goes from day to night very easily. <laughs> loungewear. <laughs> um but yeah, as as uh either that or these days, of course I'll be staring slack jawed at my phone when any important news comes in. Right. But yeah, back, back then, I think probably in two thousand nine, when I found out it was adapted, I I was um yeah, I was just very pleased. Uh, but I hadn't written the novel with that adaptation in mind at all. Uh, I had written the novel in the vain hope, or not vain as it turned out, but in the desperate hope that I would get a book deal. And I literally hadn't th- thought further than that. Um, all the lovely extras that can make an author's life such fun, such as foreign rights, um, US book tours, um, all of those good things that happened to the book, I hadn't thought about. I had just thought about crafting a story and writing a book that I thought we could sell to a publisher. So... Um,
1: the adaptation wasn't, you know, uppermost it, it in your mind. It wasn't
2: part of And it yet it's what
1: readers seem to think is the first thing we think about. You know, and that we must all be desperate for it. And they start asking you straight away, who would play so-and-so and who would play so-and-so? Like, it's all you think about. And it really isn't, is it?
2: It's really not, because there's such different mediums that if you try and think in terms of what's going to work on camera and you start thinking about who you... I mean, it can sometimes it can be useful to have an image in your head of your character, a physical image, because it will affect how they move through the world, of course... But if you start thinking about what's going to look good on a screen, then that will not translate to the book because you're serving a completely different audience. It's a completely different relationship a reader has with a novel to uh, a viewer watching TV. Something like primetime TV, you have to, for a start, you have to catch, what, a couple of million viewers bottom line if you want to be recommissioned oh, more all. than that now i think um, <laughs> uh, i am not great with the numbers i think poison tree had about four or five million yeah, and that good. was that was yeah. good for good for these days um and with a novel you d- you don't expect to sell anything like that you expect to reach people in a very different way and you're it's much more of a conversation with a reader
1: now, it did, it did have an incredible cast, uh, Matthew Good, Ophelia one, and Miana Buring. I should again declare a bit of a personal interest here, she's playing the lead in the, in the new BBC adaptation of my stuff coming out next year, so an amazing cast, but did you have a kind of fantasy cast? You said, you know, you started to think about what characters might look like, was there a kind of, this is my dream casting, should it ever happen?
2: Uh, it wouldn't have been them, but I couldn't be happier that they were picked. I actually did suggest Ophelia for Bieber right. um, on the basis of having seen her photograph in the Evening Standard magazine, <laughs> and she was, at, um, she was at a party, a polo party or something, and I looked and I said, well, there's Bieber, and I suggested it to the producers over lunch. Um, but my novel was about very awkward, kind of damaged, fragile characters living in a kind of Fallen Down House, and then I got three movie stars. Um, but that's showbiz for you, isn't it? Yeah. But they did a great job, and actually I found that when I... I gave a talk about the novel about a week after the screening, and I found that when... it was I was teaching, so I was breaking the novel down and talking about how I wrote different scenes, and I found that when I mentioned each scene, I was thinking of the cast in my head, rather than the people I'd created. But I I actually um thought when I wrote the first draft of The Poison Tree, I had Billy Piper In my head. Um, But I think, I don't know if that's because she occupied, I don't know, uh, she was perfect for the role all because I was watching loads of Doctor Who at the time <laughs> and that's uh, that's <laughs> yes. when it was written so sometimes it is you know if she if you spend an hour a week in Billy Piper's virtual company in front of the TV maybe she'll turn into but th- there was something about her look she's quite um, Billy Piper's quite sort of athletic as I wanted Karen to be rather than the sort of ethereal gamin beauty that I, n- I knew Bieber had so maybe, maybe that's what Can I ask were you going...
3: involved in the development process of, of when uh,
2: Only very informally um, so I, I saw everything as it was going along. But I deliberately asked not to have an official role because... Um, well, partly because if it all went wrong, then I could take a step back and completely... <laughs> nothing to do, other, nothing <laughs> to do with me. Nothing to do with me, Gus. I said to the producers, what I would really love to do this time is watch and learn and see how you do it. And um, the scriptwriter, um, Emilia Girolamo was fantastic in that every time she made a change, she said, this is why I've done it. So she changed the murder victims. I had two in my novel and she blended them into one and it was a really bold change and it worked so well not just because it saved her all the time she needed to get it down into 90 minutes for ITV but she also took a separate storyline um a kind of things that go bump in the night character a guy living in a caravan on the beach because she said what i can't do on screen is get into your character's mind the way that you have done in the novel so we need we need a bogeyman essentially and she introduced a character to embody all of my narrator's fears And I would never have thought of doing something like that it was it was it was a fantastic masterclass. class when you've
1: got really good screenwriter you know they often make you go i wish i thought i you know i wish i thought yes. of that when yeah. i wrote the book i mean i think one of the fun things you can do when you have something optioned is i used to play this game called carry-on casting where i would essentially think which of the carry-on stars would play so you know instead of,
4: <laughs> yes, instead of going course.
1: i'd like idris elba and i'd like i'd yes. go right who's sid james gonna play who's charles Hawtrey gonna play who's kenneth Williams? did you find play?
3: you could cast your oh books yes absolutely with carry-on entirely with carry-on characters, entirely with
1: carry on characters. <laughs> no, there's no high compliment. You know, trying to find a, part, a good part for Byrne Bresslaw and Jim Dale, the kind of slightly lesser known ones, but <laughs> there was always a part for Hawtrey, always a <laughs> part, always a part for Sir James. Um, now, Erin, you've got a new book coming. He said, she said. When's yeah. that? When's that coming out? It's
2: coming out in May.
1: And I gather that's already been option for TV. Any more news on that? Uh,
2: I've got a, a very strange um, uh, kind of. Golden gag deal, um, whereby <laughs> I'm not allowed <gasps> to... Sounds good, that
1: oh, sounds... Right. Tell us about the golden yes, gag it's deal. Yes, been, it's
2: been optioned by TV in America, and that's all I'm allowed to tell you. Until Ooh, something else happens. Listeners. Yeah.
3: Oh, fantastic news, congratulations.
2: Thank this you. is
1: what we want to hear. Now, Robert, tell us a bit about your process. So so you create Death in Paradise. You remember the very moment that you created it. <laughs> yes. Um, written many of the scripts. What What's the process of getting it getting it onto the screen? I should imagine it's, the, you know, there's a, there's
3: a large writing team. It's a hugely popular programme. So, I mean, the process is very, very collegiate and very collaborative. Um, So, in fact, we're doing it at the moment uh, where we're trying to come up with new ideas for new stories. As you know, Aaron, when you're coming up with an idea with a book, you're kind of on your own. And until you've had the idea, you can't even begin to imagine uh, pitching the idea or or talking to a publisher about it. But with the TV show, it's not uncommon for me to go in with nothing, so I go into a room. I've got all of my notes, which I collect over the years. GCHQ, like all of us, have probably got good files on us. Um, so I've got all these ideas that enable us that don't add up to anything. And then there's a, a script producer. There's a script editor. There's another executive there. Um, and you spend the day just trying to impress someone. It's a bit like sort of pitching for sort of a, a comedy show. You're just saying, what if? You know, a good question that that we ask is, you know, um, who wouldn't you kill? Um, you know, And I remember last year doing, well, you wouldn't kill someone you'd never met before. Can we do an episode where you kill someone you've never met before? And so you talk around the room and, um, and it sort of coalesces over time. And every time you hit a brick wall or you're tired or you want to go out and get a sandwich, someone else will come up with a brilliant idea. So it's broadly a really exciting and fun laughing process. Whereas when you're on your own with a book, There's nothing. No help. (laughs) No. And And it's interesting that it should be such a fun and enjoyable process sitting around trying to figure out
1: how to murder people. Well, it is funny (laughs) because
3: as much as anything else, you're sitting there sort of reenacting how to get through a door with some kind of stabbing device and then whether you can cut someone's carotid artery. And you just start giggling as you're going, I'm a 44-year-old man in an office (laughs) in London trying to mime cutting someone's carotid artery in front of a load of other highly intelligent, interesting storytellers um so it is it is um it's a fun job that the writing is always tough i mean the writing the tv show is tough writing the books uh are tough because it's the it's the fear that you aren't going to get to the end it's the fear that you don't have it in you to tell the story to, that you're not going to find the story that you're, you're going to fail so all of that kind of all of the doubt and fear remains the same in both i mean you know whether it's tv or books it's still the same miserable process so a question to both of you i
1: mean is there a kind of key to this? I mean, back to rules again. What do you think the golden rules
3: should be when, when a novel moves to the screen, when you try and turn one thing into the other? Well, you serve the new medium. You, it's slash and burn. If it doesn't work in the new place that it's got to land, then, I mean, like you were saying earlier, Aaron, about um, taking two characters and turning it into one and physicalising or making concrete the, the idea that there are fears that the character might have internally, that sounds really smart and clever. So that's my, my my first thing is you've got to let go of the old thing and embrace the new. Yes, and you can be too faithful to it. I mean, I think that's a
1: mistake some sometimes that is made. That an adaptation is too faithful. It's a very different thing, and so maybe it's a very good thing that the original writer isn't involved.
2: I think so. I mean, I would rather write something original for the screen than adapt to my own work because I think there's a closeness there that, um, yeah, that does blinky you to what's possible on screen what i have i ha- it's actually changed though that's very interesting it's ch- uh, having um worked from a screenplay and the other way around it has changed the way i write my novels though so i used to i think now much more in terms of budget than <laughs> i did. And, 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 and i'm no, i'm kind of joking not not just in that oh, well i can't write that scene because it'll ne- it, it will put off um it will put off uh, potential producers. But I, I think now in terms of characters have to really earn their stripe just as an actor would. Um, I used to kind of ha- populate my novels with lots and lots of secondary characters and I don't do that anymore. I shrink my cast, as it were, for a novel right down so that everybody absolutely earns their place. How funny, because my time. my experience
3: is exactly the same, but starting from the other side of the coin, that well-known metaphor, mm. which is that all I think about is, can we afford to shoot this? And, and part of the reason why I ended up writing the books was because they were ideas that I pitched and developed that we realized we couldn't afford to shoot. My first book has a sort of a Japanese tea house made of paper, and you need to know where the sun is. And so you've got the right shade and stuff like that. And there was no way we could afford to do that. And when I started writing the books, I religiously presumed that the book had to contain four suspects. Because that's as many suspects as we can afford in the TV show. And it was only halfway through writing the first book, I went... Actually, suspects are free.
2: I can drive it like I stole it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly,
3: because, because the, the the constraint, the technical constraint of limiting your number of suspects is very good because it makes it more of a chamber piece. Mm-hmm. It makes you more rigorous about making everyone earn their place, just like you say. But on the other hand, the joy of a book is that there should be some space to breathe, and it's quite enjoyable to meet other people. And I have found that a struggle. What I've loved about doing the books is trying to find not a new rhythm of telling stories, but trying to find pleasure in taking more time over telling the story rather than worrying about, we've got to, we can't, for example, in the TV show, we can't have night scenes. It's really expensive to shoot at night. So I just don't come up with ideas that film at night. So in the book, I'm also not coming up with ideas at night time, which is crazy. And I'm having to learn to relax and just tell the story I want to tell. Budget constraints do, after many years of working on a show that's entirely shot on the other side of the world, budget constraints, just they cripple me well it's funny you should talk about sort of almost
1: thinking about budgetary constraints when you when you're writing a novel I mean psychological domestic role well, whatever you want to call it is is pretty cheap as, <laughs> as a rule isn't it you yeah. know three people or four you know or a marriage or whatever it was. you know you don't have to worry about those scenes where scenes of helicopters you know come swooping in over the mountains you, or... you
2: don't and they're they're often incidental but um I went to a crime writing um sorry an adaptation seminar not long ago um and the uh, crime writer and now novelist Simon Booker t- told us all the things that producers are looking for. He's also a TV producer. He wears many hats. Um, and he said what producers don't want is uh, actors where you have to age a little bit. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, if you've got a- if you've got actors that you have to age over about 15 years, that's very problematic with casting. Well, of course, all- almost all my books deal with some kind of past misdemeanor coming up to impinge upon a present Um Uh, So what they want is, you know, you either age them a couple of years, or we have two different actors playing them. So you've got, you know, the kind of the young man and then the older one. So that's really difficult. So of course, I've shot myself in the foot there by always having characters uh, who are looking back on their younger selves um, from a distance of almost exactly ten to fifteen years. (laughs) Um, And location is interesting as well. He said, you know, minimise the locations if you can, and that's why psychological thrillers are easy to shoot because. By definition, domestic noir usually centres around one building. And the, the novel he said, she said that I've just written happens on all five continents, takes mm. in total eclipses and um, vast open seas and international travel. And so, um, I mean, it's been optioned anyway, but I... What were I, you thinking? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I seem to... I, 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 it, if you look at the book on paper, it almost looks un, unadaptable, but... Um,
3: it does prove your original statement which is that you don't think of the adaptation no no the first thing is don't we can do the eclipse in in post but i don't think we can do the five continents yeah. You know, Could you just set it in Margate? Maybe? Well, somebody <laughs> clearly thinks they can adapt it, even if we're not allowed to say Absolutely. who that someone, someone is. Somewhere.
1: Um, now we come to a regular feature in which a stab in the dark's roving reporter catches up with some of those who bring us the very best crime fiction and crime TV. In this episode, our man with the notebook, Paul Hirons, spoke to novelist and screenwriter Adam Hamdy about the art of adaptation and working with David Mitchell, the worldwide bestseller, not the comedian, and a certain Tom Hardy. <laughs>
4: Seeing as we've been talking about adaptations here, we thought we'd consult an expert with real first-hand knowledge and experience in both fields, and in fact, someone with experience of adapting his own work. So we asked novelist and screenwriter Adam Hamdy, who's recently completed an adaptation of David Mitchell's complex and brilliant number nine dream for film, and is in the process of adapting his own novel, Pendulum, for Tom Hardy's television production company, to give us the top five golden rules he uses when he sits down to adapt a novel for screen. Over to you, Adam.
0: So my golden rules for adaptation, number one, don't do it unless you feel it. You have to have some sort of sense of connection with the with the book that you're adapting. Um, you have to have some sense of identification with its themes or its characters. The story has to mean something to you. You have to feel it uh, and feel that connection. Number two uh, on the golden rules list is not to change it too much. Um... There's a reason that people like the book. There's a reason that people have bought the book in shops. Um, And, you know, your kind of job as the adapter is to not change it too much so that it becomes something unrecognizable. I recently had an experience adapting a very well-respected novel, and I understood from the producer that the previous writer had wanted to completely transform it. And I always think, as as a screenwriter why would you do that? You know, if you if you want to change something so much that it becomes something completely different, why not start with a blank piece of paper and come up with your own idea? My my third golden rule is don't change it too little. <laughs> so there's a Goldilocks zone for, for adaptation. If you just transcribe what's in a book, it'll be a disaster because most books aren't written with the screen in mind. There are um, techniques, there are approaches that work really well on screen that don't work well in in a book so from my personal experience I'm currently going through the process of adapting my book pendulum I've, I've looked at it as though it's someone else's work tried to sort of approach it as though it doesn't belong to me and, and avoid having any sacred cows uh, that you know I won't change uh, and I've opened it out much more made it a, a less intense uh, experience but made it much more character driven and given Lots of different perspectives um, for the TV show that, that that aren't there in the book. So far it's been a really good experience. we am kind of on track to um, to make a really awesome TV show. It's Tom Hardy's production company uh, producing. I don't think any actor's going to commit to starring in something until they've seen the script, but I have my fingers crossed if we deliver something great then he'd want to get involved in some capacity. The fourth golden rule I'd say is find the heart of the piece. I usually um in books, there's some kind of uh, message. I mean, I read Number Nine Dream uh, years ago and then got to talking to the producer about adapting it. And it's just one of those books I could see how it would unfold. And and really what it was about was getting to the heart of the story, like, like I had said earlier, and understanding what makes that book special. And for me, it was actually the sense of loss. It was the fact that he'd lost his father and he'd lost his sister. And it was um, a quest for for reunion and also redemption um and kind of once i'd got that straight in my head then it was about selecting the moments from the book that best illustrated that and then i'd you know kind of tweaking them to fit what best works on screen and then the last piece of advice i have uh, number five golden rule is don't start believing it's your vision (laughs) um i've had A couple of producers say to me that writers they've worked with have got very defensive and protective about adapted work, saying, this is my vision, you can't change the script, you can't, you know, this is... And and actually, you look at it and think, well, actually, what you've done is you've adapted an underlying piece of work, and if
4: it's anyone's vision, it's the author's. So there you have it. There's the top five golden rules Adam uses for adapting a novel into something for TV. Adam's novel Pendulum is out now to buy on Headline. And look out for Pendulum, the TV series, coming sometime soon.
1: So we heard a bit there about the art of adaptation from novel to screen. Now let's flip it around a little bit and come at it from the other direction from... from screen to book um Erin you obviously you were asked to write the adaptation of the of the hugely popular tv series Mm Broadchurch how did that come about were you were you down on the set hobnobbing with David Tennant and Olivia Coleman, Uh, and
2: alas alas I wasn't um it didn't come about through my fabulous celebrity contacts it (laughs) came um once again I was sitting on my at my computer in (laughs) loungewear in my loungewear and um I got an email from my agent saying that this is happening, they're looking for somebody to turn it into a novel. And I basically had to audition. I had to turn the first act of the drama, which for those who are familiar with it, which will probably be most of you, is the moment from the very first scene where um, the murdered boy's mother wakes up in bed until the moment she finds his body on the beach. Um, I had to turn that into uh, three or four chapters of a novel. And then submit it. And I know there are a couple of other authors doing the same. Oh, that must be and quite
1: nerve wracking. Authors don't usually have to audition. No, we do really they? don't.
2: It's it's the one bullet we think we've dodged, uh, in, in our craft. Um and yeah, and then I had to wait for about three or four weeks to find out whether I'd got the gig. And then I got it, and then I had to write it very quickly, but of course someone had already done the heavy lifting for me. So um it was it was a delight to work on because it was everything I love about a novel, which is um, interiority and really exploring and inhabiting inhabiting a character's thoughts and uh, playing with words and landscape and and using language to evoke what what was one of the things that I think really made the drama, which was that Dorset landscape. Um, but none of the headache of plotting. It was so you had
1: you, obviously you know you had the plotting, you had the characters, you had the landscape, but how much freedom? Were you given to kind of add and embellish? And-
2: I was allowed to do whatever I wanted, so long as I ran it past uh, Chris Chibnall, the creator, first. Right. And he actually said, "You can, if you want to, you can take this somewhere else. You can give a new surprise ending." Um, and I thought very hard about doing that because there are precedents for that. Um, David Hewson adapted the Killing, all three series, for into novels, and with the first novel that he wrote I mean it's a great big doorstop of a book and it's really well done there's a lot more of The Killing 2 Broadchurch to condense but he added on another maybe 40 pages at the end which provide a further twist to what happened on screen and I thought very hard about doing that and I thought um, and I I actually did offer up an alternative ending which turned out to be the one that Chris was already shooting for the US version Ah. but the reason I didn't was because by then I already had seen the script for series 2 and the only thing I was interested in doing was anything that I could do to tease or allude to for Series 2. And the nature of the contract meant that the broadcaster wouldn't let me. So um, while the producer thought it would be interesting to do, ITV said, no way you write this book. And we also wrote ebooks, short stories that came out at midnight yes, after every episode remember, yeah. on Kindle. And with those, I had much more free reign. And they were original shorts, they were completely different material, kind of backstory to characters or little subplots, or basically like deleted scenes that you get on a DVD, mm-hmm. extras. And there, again, um, I had ideas that I couldn't do if they even hinted at spoilers at all. So while my hands were never tied by the producers and we had some really interesting conversations, um, yeah, ITV said no.
3: And did you <laughs> find that, because the, the TV show is eight hours isn't Mm. it so it's going to end on a cliffhanger or a development did you find that rhythm of regular every hour of tv time did that translate into the book happily or did you want to sort of did you spend longer over some periods and truncate others
2: no not really it it didn't chop itself up on in the novel into eight parts the big challenge is that you can't be nearly as agile on the page as you can on a screen a camera can intercut between up to, I mean, maybe 10, 15 more scenes in one minute in a 60-second period. So you can flash, for example, when um, in, I think, episode seven, they had several scenes where you had two or more suspects being interviewed in police cells at a time. And the suspense is created there by you go from one face to the next face, one cell to the next cell. Well, if you do that on the page, by the time you've established where you are just for one look on a face, um, if you do that, if you chop and change every paragraph, then the reader's mind is going to, melt you can't you can't establish a scene as quickly as a camera can so the challenges lay with blending those scenes and or or rather unblending them extrapolating them so I had one interview scene followed by another and still keeping that suspense so that was where the trickiness was
1: but you've got what you've got a let's say a hundred thousand word novel Mm. uh to, to encapsulate eight hours of television. Mm. The, you know, the other, when it's the other way around, a 100,000 world novel, as you said before, will probably end up being two hours of television if you're lucky. So you, you've actually got a, quite a lot of freedom to fill stuff in, to go in mm. and, you know, but still must have been quite a nerve-wracking job. I mean, we are talking about the single most popular programme on TV at the time, an absolute national phenomenon, everybody talking about it. Was it? Did you feel very nervous taking it on?
2: No, because I, um, I felt that Broadchurch... Felt like a book that it felt like something I would have written, and in fact, when it was first broadcast, I got a text from my sister saying, uh, "This feels like something you would write." I got that within the first 15 minutes of the first episode of Broadchurch, and so I had a a clear sense of ownership as a fan, but also as a writer. It felt very on brand for me, and so um, and I had such such a great vote of confidence from Chris that I felt absolute permission to do it, and because I wasn't changing the plot. In, I mean, I put, I put my own, you know, little layers in, and there's a lot more backstory, and there, there's definitely added value. But because I didn't have that responsibility, um, there was no pressure to deliver in quite that way that there is with an original novel.
1: And obviously, uh, you've, you've, uh, Rob, you've, you've written novels based on Death in
3: Paradise, which a show you created. How weird is that? I mean, it, it is quite <laughs> weird, actually. But, but I didn't mean to. I didn't set out to. I mean. Because I'm a because I'm a writer who loves murder mysteries. Obviously, latterly, you know, I mentioned earlier, *Midsummer Murders* or *Jonathan Creek* or *Monk*, which was a massive influence ah, on the yes, show, Monk. which I obviously wouldn't ever say in public because uh, the uptight, OCD male, middle-class, white, middle-aged man who leads *Monk* is nothing like the guy I created in my show. Um, but uh, when I started falling in love with the genre, it was his book. So as soon as I had the TV show up and running, not as soon, once I'd recovered and had some sleep. and started thinking about what I wanted to do next, I realised that I wanted to write a murder mystery book. But it's really hard to do murder mysteries. We sort of hinted at this earlier. Modern-day murder mysteries, you can't really do because of, um, you know, CSI, because of forensics. You know, it's very hard to justify. Ever since the mobile phone was invented, it's very hard to write crime in any kind of an old-fashioned sense. And what I hadn't realised after poor old Bob Wilmer had died was that when I had the idea, oh, let's do something on a small island in the Caribbean, is that it legitimises you to have no forensics, no ballistics, no coroner, no autopsy. So everything gets sent off island. No
1: CCTV cameras. Well, you say that we have quite a lot oh, of CCTV. Oh, do you? What? <laughs> well, no, early doors, we said, <laughs>
3: we will have no CCTV. Quite, about three episodes in, you go, it'd be quite useful to have some CCTV. Oh, it's really okay. hard. We have um, a sort of astounding joke in the production, right? no more CCTV, because unfortunately it, it is just a wonderful theatrical device, CCTV, isn't yeah, it? it? to have is, somebody looking at the pictures and hold, a, freeze that there, go and back a bit. indeed, your, you know. your wife earlier this year used CCTV in one of her episodes. Yes. But yes, to go back to why I ended up doing the books, it was the books that I fell in love with originally. And I thought, well, look, what I want to do now is I want to try and take the the small amount of cachet that I've got as a murder mystery guy and turn it into a book. But what I'd learned from Death and Paradise is you re- need a really good precinct. I didn't want to do anything, period. It has to be a good precinct. Um, it's got to have an, an iconic lead. Uh, you've got to be able to have interesting characters, interesting worlds that you go into. And, and the more I thought about it, I thought, I've done this. I've d-. And, and as you know, Erin and, and Mark, the, um, in your contract, you reserve the right to write the novelization of your TV show when you sell uh, an idea to TV. And I said to my agent, "Could I use that to actually write original Death in Paradise novels?" And it isn't often done this way because I want to do standalone things. You know, as, as though I were, um, you know, doing Morse books. But after the TV show had been created, right? Um, and uh, and so I, I sort of went to publishers and said, "Look, I want to do some standalone Death in Paradise books because I want to learn if I can write murder mystery books because that was the." That was where I first fell in love with the books, with a little Pan uh, book in my back pocket on the train.
1: Well, before we start to wrap things up, um, let's just talk a little bit about what, what you both have coming up. Obviously, a new series of Death in Paradise coming yes, in series. Yes, attracted by your wife. Attracted by, of course, the scripts and well, and and several weeks shooting on a Caribbean Well, funnily Ireland.
3: enough, to be a, to, to be a main, we, we've got four main actors who go out there for the six months. They have a tough time. Uh, they uh, are well looked after, but it is a tough, we shoot 11 day fortnights, which means it's six days working one Mm. week, five days working the next week. So you're not even getting full weekends off. But if you're a story of the week actor, I reckon it must be one of the best (laughs) gigs in telly because you're out there for two weeks um, and scheduling, you know, when I was talking earlier, when we were talking earlier about budgets, budgets is such a massive problem. So you'll quite often get called as a story of the week actor for a couple of days work, then 10 days off, And then you've got to tip up for the Denoumont filming right at the end. And you are in the Caribbean and you have got 10 days holiday. So that is, I think if I was going to be an actor on the show, I'd want to do one episode. Um, Ideally, you want to be killed because then you've only got a couple of scenes because we've got a very short minute to body count. You know, we're three or four minutes and then you're out of the show. So that's, that's the best job in Death and Paradise. Be the dead body.
1: And and we know that you've got He, he Said, She Said. Tell me again when it's coming, Erin. It's
2: coming out in May. May so, the 4th.
1: May the 4th. I'll be uh, with you. I'll be with you. So tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about uh, He Said, She Said.
2: It's set in the... It's about eclipse chasers. So that's people who follow total eclipses all over the world. And um, this one kicked off in 1999. And a young couple witness a rape at um, a festival to mark the total eclipse down in Cornwall. And it's about their Different take on what they saw and what happens after the trial.
1: Ooh, and there will be some narrators who are possibly unreliable.
2: There might. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As usual, we ask our guests to come along with recommendations for a good read and a good watch. Who wants to go first? Robert, you're looking keen. Uh, so tell us about a book, possibly a, a uh, golden age mystery. Well, I'll you. tell
3: you what. I can. I'm sort of. I'm not loath to recommend him because he's a fabulous writer. But it's not like he's not already created Midsummer Murders. But The Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. I read it on. Uh, I read it last week. It is a meta postmodern classic golden age murder mystery. Ooh, it's all those things. It's all of those things. So it starts off in the present day with an editor receiving a manuscript from this rattled old writer who's written another classic golden age murder mystery. Then we then we get given the book. And what's fascinating, I mean, there's so much that's fascinating about it, is that one Anthony Horowitz adores the genre. It, it comes out of every single sentence. But um, when you go into the manuscripts of this story that's been written, it's actually there's quite a barrier to that because you're sort of going, oh, I don't wanna read this. This is sort of too clever by half. But he slowly draws you into this small town and you get the sort of the, the resonances of other Agatha Christie style books. You get through the story and you're totally compelled along. Then a thing happens, which I won't say. And you realise that there is more than one story going on. It is a tour de force, an absolutely wonderful, brilliant, fabulous read.
1: Okay, well, that's The Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. And what
3: about um, a TV, possibly a TV adaptation? A TV adaptation. I recently, it's unfair, you've come to me twice now. I was going to have a break there, but I can do it. I can do it. (laughs) I can do an adaptation. Um, I, after many years, it is now years, isn't it, finally decided to watch the modern-day Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy Uh with Gary Gary Oldman and lasted 30 seconds. And talking about adaptations and how you must throw away the book and immediately embrace the new medium, I couldn't throw away the book. Oh, yeah. So I went back and rewatched the entirety of the Alec Guinness Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and it is brilliant. It so the original up. It TV adaptation. amazing. And I would commend to anyone to go and find it, buy it, and watch Ian Richardson's first uh, entrance, where he walks into a room holding a cup of tea, it is one of the campest, <laughs> most brilliant entrances ever made by a human being. It's a wonderful, wonderful TV series. Okay, it.
1: Tinker Tailor Soldiers by uh, the BBC adaptation. Erin, you've had a couple of minutes, so a
2: book. I have. Okay, um, a book I would love everybody to read. I'm, I think it's coming out early next year. It's called Little Deaths by a new writer called Emma Flint. And it's about a mother in um, Queens in New York in the 1960s. Very glamorous, very... Um, very flamboyant young mother whose children are murdered and the novel is told partly from her viewpoint and partly from the viewpoint of the young reporter who becomes obsessed with her and finding out what really happened and it's it's a really it's a very literary thriller but it it's so much more than that what i was really what what really appealed to me about it is that it's a real dissection of the way we try women by media. And I happened to read it at the same time as I was watching the Netflix documentary about Amanda Knox, um, who was, of course, convicted and acquitted and convicted and acquitted again of the awful Meredith Kircher murder in Perugia, in Italy. And there were, even though it's said in the 1960s and it's ostensibly a period piece, there is a lot to be said about the way uh, the media still treats women, especially mothers, actually, um, when terrible things happen to their children. But it's a I've made it sound, I've gone a bit tub-thumping there and made it sound like it's, a, <laughs> it's a, a kind of trailblazing feminist piece, and it is, but it is also just a magical, captivating read, really beautifully written, and I read it in one sitting. It was one of those books that you're reading and the sun's coming up even in the winter.
1: Oh, well, you, you can't get a better recommendation than that. What about uh, something to watch, possibly an adaptation?
2: I can't give you an adaptation, I'm afraid, But just because nothing comes to mind. But what I'm going to recommend is nothing new, but I've been re-watching it lately, and it's Cracker. Oh. Um, Cracker must be 25 years old now, yeah, yeah. if not more. Um, and uh, the reaction I just have around this table um, yeah. just tells you exactly how golden it was. And it hasn't dated at all. It's timeless. Um, for those of you who haven't watched it, you are in for a treat. It's Robbie Coltrane. It's the classic um, forensic psychologist piece. And uh, the only thing that has dated about it, I suppose, is that now it's... Because it spawns so many secondary imitators, it's quite easy to parody now. But I have just watched one about the Catholic family man who um, is linked to a series of murders of prostitutes. And it's just, it's electric. It's the best thing I've watched in years.
1: And that's about your lot for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. We've learned what it takes to take a novel to the small screen and that setting a TV series on a Caribbean island isn't quite as cushy as it sounds. At least, that's what my wife keeps telling me. You can find out more about A Stab in the Dark along with some great book competitions at uktv.co.uk slash dark. Go there now and our very own Paul Hirons will be running down his top ten novel-to-screen adaptations. Or if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, use the hashtag dark. Oh, and don't forget to review us on your podcast app. Any feedback is very important important to us especially the nice kind because we're very sensitive and the nasty kind makes us cry so if you're able to rate and review us please do so with that it's a huge thank you to my guests erin kelly and robert Thurgood, to our producers sam pearson and paul hirons my name's mark billingham and until the next episode when i'll be back with more fantastic guests thank you for listening